This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by UBCP ACTRA, a.k.a. the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists, the national organization of professional performers working in the English language recorded media in Canada. For more information about UBCP ACTRA, visit ubcpactra.ca. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Rani Firminger, and today... Well, today I'm delighted. I'm delighted because I get to welcome Gary Jones to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Oh my God. Thank God for crowd control here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, studio audience. Okay. Well, let me state up front that the Gary Jones who is joining me in studio today is not the Gary Jones who is the president of the United Auto Workers Union and who was sentenced to 28 months in prison for embezzling union funds. Nor is he Gary Jones, the costume designer, or Gary Jones, the award-winning realtor with three decades of sales experience in the Tri-Cities. Although it is now my dream in life to produce a podcast called The World According to Gary Joneses, featuring these three Gary Joneses (laughs) and the Gary Jones who is sitting behind the YVR Screen Scene podcast mic today. (laughs) This Gary Jones is an actor, a comedian, a writer, a host, and famously... Paul McGillian's drinking buddy. He is perhaps best known for his fan favorite recurring role as Walter Harriman in Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Atlantis, for his countless appearances on CBC's hit radio show, The Debaters, and for his numerous times herding cats from behind the podium at the Leo Awards Gala, which given the alcohol and the number of awards handed out, is an often thankless job that Gary has handled with grace and good humor and for playing William Shatner in my husband's favorite Gary Jones work of art, Ken Hegan's William Shatner Let Me His Hair Piece, an untrue story. You can find a link in the footnotes for this episode. You will not be disappointed. (laughs) This Gary Jones is here today to talk about the second season of Forgotten Masters, in which he plays DJ Ian Layton who has spent 45 years volunteering on co-op radio and interviewing many of the great players, but now devotes his 3 to 3.15 a.m. time slot to finding the greatest guitarists you have never heard of. These guitarists are portrayed by Ken Lawson, previous podcast guest Ken Lawson, and a revolving cast of some of the greatest hair pieces you'll ever see on this World Wide Web. Forgotten Masters is mockumentary. It's absurd. It's a love letter to music and performance and genres and co-op radio. Gary won a Leo Award for Best Actor in a Web Series for his work in the first season of Forgotten Masters. And honestly, Leo's, you should just drop off that trophy for his work in season two because he delivers. Forgotten Masters returns for second season on October 13th. And I have Gary Jones 
this Gary Jones, not the other three Gary Joneses, in the studio today to talk comedy, Harriman, hair pieces, and the Forgotten Masters will meet in season two of Forgotten Masters. Gary Jones, uh, welcome to what the Wild Screen Scene Podcast. Uh, so what am I doing here? Like, why can't the podcast just be that intro? Like, you don't actually need me here. That was it. I just summed you up so perfectly. <laughs> oh my God. As you're talking, I'm listening going, oh yeah, I did that. Oh yeah, right, right. I'm like, it's like I'm listening to the podcast about myself and I don't actually need to be in it. But okay. since I'm here, I'm going to, you know, not going to leave, obviously, but. I need you to deliver. <laughs> Do, are, are you aware that you share a name with the president of the United Auto Workers Union who was sentenced to 28 months in prison for embezzling union funds? Because that is like the first thing to come up when I Google Gary Jones is you. And then the second is incarcerated union boss, Gary Jones. No, I didn't know that. But, um, but I would say that even... You know, the people that you've mentioned, the three other Gary Joneses, for, uh, for instance, uh, the one common thing that they all have is basically they all have uh, regular paychecks. So that's what sets me apart from mm. them is that uh, from week to week, I don't know uh, when a paycheck's going to show up or what kind of work I'm going to have. So, uh, you know, at least the Gary Jones of the uh, embezzling the United Auto Workers made sure he had a regular paycheck coming in you know yeah, even yeah. if you albeit uh through embezzled funds so that's pretty good yeah <clears throat> well, he was not very I, good at it because he ended up well he being, got caught yeah he, he got, got caught. caught the thing is he, he, he you know the he, union no 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 it's like <laughs> you're gonna steal from the auto union it's like are you kidding you know yeah it's like stealing from the teamsters really come on yeah dude yeah. you're <laughs> He's, he is not he is not the smartest Gary Jones. No, cut to everybody going, have you seen Gary Jones lately? I saw him two days ago. I haven't seen him since. Where, do you know where he is? Yeah, no. Yeah. So uh, Gary Jones then. Yes. How do you describe yourself? Uh, how do I describe myself? You mean in terms of like in the context of the business, say? Well, like what do I, I, what do, I do? Well, um, yeah. Okay. So you're, you're at the Leo's. And and yes. you're meeting somebody at at the at the reception, yeah. uh, and they're like, "Hi, I'm blah blah," and you're like, "Hi, blah blah, I'm Gary Jones. Right. I'm yeah." Well, <clears throat> okay, great example. If I'm if I'm hosting, usually you get you get picked to host at the Leos because they uh, because Walter and Sonny who uh, who host the Leos they 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 need a comfort level for mm. them for themselves. I know that about them. <clears throat> So uh, after I first uh, hosted the the Leos, and Walter's an old friend of mine, and I got to know Sonny through the- I do have a quick question about Walter though, because you say he's an old friend. Yeah. Has he always had the ponytail? Always. Wow. Always, I've never- That's probably his identity, like- I've never, I've never, the, 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 the thing about Walter, I've known Walter since my, in my previous marriage, when my kids went to the Waldorf school and he was yeah. in North Van, I lived in North Van, <clears throat> Walter's kids went to the Waldorf school and Walter was on the board of the school and he did the Leos. And I think probably through that, I can't remember exactly how he uh, asked me, but probably through that is that is that where I connected with him and I met and I met him and of course the first thing you think of when you when you're fizzing clock is like wow she was a guy with a ponytail not a lot not tons of guys with ponytail yeah. but the weird thing is is that I don't know what kind of cryogenic bathtub Walter soaks in mm. but he hasn't changed he looks exactly the same and I've known him 
It's got to be 25 years. Yeah. He looks exactly the same. His hairline is the same. The ponytail's the same. The hair color's the same. And his face is basically, I don't get it. It's He's, the ponytail. Much like William Shatner in the famous William Shatner, let me his hair piece, an untrue story. Yeah. You know, that's where William Shatner, you know, gets his... His yeah, yeah, yeah. Power yeah. from yeah, it's the mojo. Yeah. It's the mojo of the Walter, hair. Walter's power, you know, comes from that ponytail. Well, you think about that. You think about the whole mythology around hair. Mm. If it goes back to like Samson, you know, like Samson's whole gig was like, you know, they, uh, you know, his strength was in his hair. And I would suggest that, uh, you know, we're diving right in here, right, uh, Sabrina? So yeah. I would suggest that. A lot of the, uh, a lot of uh, people, you know, the, the the mythology around hair is around sexuality too, and like, you know, uh, strength and uh, machismo. I think that's why there are so many ads, you know, telling men that who've lost their hair, don't you want to get your, the, you know, don't you want, you don't want to be bald, you want hair, because mm. what they're saying to them is. Uh, are, are you know you you're, you've pretty much lost your sexuality and your sex drive and your and your, your you know your your mojo right? <clears throat> and you, I you'll think, note that I am drinking from a a mug featuring famous Vancouver uh, oh Brian Markinson. Brian Markinson Brian Markinson and he looks you know, cool. he looks fantastic you know so and I Patrick think, Stewart famously sex symbol you know there are know, these men here who yeah, like say, yeah to I hold agree, a middle I the bald head up to the I agree and and uh, and I pretty much you know my my hair is gone. But um, but I think that there is enough of a pocket of a market of enough men who are insecure around losing their hair that those ads target. It's yeah. about insecurity around being a man. And if they, they think, oh, if I have hair, why do you think guys wear toupees? And like, they'd rather, they'd rather bear the weight of embarrassment or, you know, like whatever, right? Yeah. And, put a, and put a wig on or a toupee and say, I've got hair than not mm. so um so yeah and gary jones are you insecure as a man no i just it, it occurred to me as you were saying all this wonderful <laughs> stuff that i had just asked you about how you introduced yourself oh, we ended yeah. up at the leo awards at a reception then walter then hair then yeah then you know and sexuality and, and machismo toxic and masculinity exactly and See? welcome to the podcast i'm telling you this yeah. is where it's gonna go you, you have no idea when you brought me on I, like, I i i love I it because uh i and and just to sort of be a kind of a bit meta about it is mm -hmm. that is that these conversations I love these kind of conversations and the way they can go if you, if you're with the right person because it it because it harkens back to my days as an improviser and um and it's and I did it for so long that it, I started with Second City and then I moved out here and I spent ten or fifteen years with Vancouver Theater Sports mm. and so improv is in my bones. It I stopped improvising per se on stage, you know, doing like improv shows because uh, I kind of moved on from that. But the but the what the but the in, what's in the DNA of improv. Uh, serves me every day you know, yeah. when I write, when I collaborate, when I think things, you know, uh, create things. It's <clears throat> so much of it is rooted in improv and a very much a, kind of like a yes and uh, way of uh, walking through the world kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So I guess to get back to your question, I don't remember people, what it is. Well, the question would be <laughs> how would I introduce myself at the Leos? But yeah. most people would. They, they would, it sounds odd to say, but like a lot of them have, I've worked with tons of them. They kind of know me. They, if they don't know me from working in film, they have they know my improv background. Yeah. And that's partly, uh, I would say, that I was, <clears throat> that I was booked 
on the strength of that because what I loved about hosting the Leos was to be able to get up and improvise. And if a, if a, somebody got up and, and presented an award and then something happened on stage, I would come out and I would comment on it and uh, basically say what the audience was thinking. And I, you have to have, you have to, you have to be a bit fearless. Mm. You have to go, I'm just going to do this. It's you know? a tough room, <clears throat> you know, especially like it's the gala night, which is when they, that you host, like it's a long night, a lot of awards, people are eating, people are drinking, you know, as the show goes on, yep. like there's an emptying out into the, into the bar and you yeah. have to be, cause you're, you are there for the nominees and the, yeah. the shows like you're there. Uh, yeah. Like all the nominees, the nominees, you have to remember that every time their name is mentioned, no matter where it is in the evening, yeah. it's as if it, it's, fre it's, it's like refreshing. It's like you're at the back at the top of the loop. Right. Yeah. So whether or not people show up, go, okay, well, my category's, um, been uh I, you know been mentioned i didn't win so now i'm going to the bar so there is a kind of like uh you know the herd mentality where they start to leave the room yeah but for me the thing i do is i don't look at that and take it personally i start to comment on that yeah and i make jokes about the people leaving and so I show that the, and the audience has to feel held. They have to know that you're not going to cack out or cave in just because a bunch of people are leaving because they're in the bar. It, it just, it, you know, the more you can face it head on, they love it, you know? Yeah. And I remember they, uh, I, you probably wouldn't know this, but, but Walter reminded me of this is that I've, I've, ho I've done the most hosting of the Leo's of anybody, I couldn't believe it. Really? I've hosted, I've hosted the Leos nine times. That's insane for me. That's insane. I've been to twenty-two ceremonies. Yeah, and I hosted nine and of them. Nine, wow. Nine, yeah. but I remember one time he asked me to, and I was always more comfortable hosting the gala because I knew because that's when the actors and directors yeah. and the people that I've worked with, in uh, you know, uh, show up. But he asked me to host one time the. Um, the, uh, the celebration awards, mm. which is more the crew awards. You it's know, pretty like, raucous, like that. That's it's a good pretty time. raucous, but I yeah. don't. But I don't. I generally don't know these people because you know it's like sound effects, special effects, yeah. this and that. People that I don't really post production people, people that I don't see. So I remember, I remember, I was like, how am I going to connect to these people? So I wrote this joke. <laughs> I wrote this joke, and it worked really well. When I went out and I said, you know, you know, uh, let's be honest. I don't. Uh, for me, I look out on a sea of unfamiliar faces here and it's like a veritable who's that of the bc <laughs> film and tv industry and, and they totally lost it and that was a funny way of me saying come on i don't know who you are and you 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 probably don't know me some of them have come up to me and go they'll go i know you i've worked with you and and i go i, I don't remember but then they tell me that they were editing they were in an editing booth and they saw me a million times editing so they knew who I am. Yeah. So I get, I kind of get in there in various different ways, but yeah. you know, I what love a good the, way, the, What it's a good a great, way to describe you. Gary Jones, he gets in there in a very different way. <laughs> that's, that's how you should introduce yourself. Gary um, Jones, he gets in, he gets in so there. So I, I, I'd yeah. like to kind of go back in time right yeah. now. Mm -hmm. um, like how did we get here? I want to paint me a picture of who you were as a child, you know, like uh, my my kid is like they're twelve and a half right now. Mm -hmm. It's quite an age. Oh yeah, they know everything. 
Right. And, so, and yet, nothing. Nothing. Um, but I, I, lo I love this kind of time travel because I think that there are moments in our childhood where we get some like clear, the clear like insight into you know the ad adult you know that we we are to become. Like, look at all my my. Uh, superhero memorabilia from my childhood the fact that i went oh, into that's, those are all yours those are mine oh, wow. you know so the fact that i have grown up and now i interview you know people who you know so, start so and act in sci-fi how and long stuff. so these uh, so folks i'm sitting here looking at this glass case <laughs> that has a lock on it <laughs> believe it or not this just by virtue of putting a lock on it uh sabrina has uh, is telling people this is like of high value these are collectibles they're not toys. i know but let me ask you yeah. um uh welcome to my podcast i'm talking to sabrina <laughs> sure, sure. uh sabrina like how long well like how far would the furthest of those go back like how oh gosh years? how many um years? so some of the things on the bottom there yeah uh do you see there's a little Kermit the Frog, like a little yeah. green Kermit the Frog? Oh, yeah, yeah, right there. Um, that I carried with me to in my hand when I went to a new kindergarten oh. in the early 80s. That little Kermit was my friend. I love And this. I remember I had it love like it. I had a in the I had a sweater on and I had a tunic because I, I it's the school I went to, Protestant school in Quebec. Uh, and I had it in my in my in my pocket and I just held on, I gripped Kermit. You know, so tightly, and so you know, because he was like that. He was a part of my like your security. My he was yeah, your was, security frog. He was my secret. I mean, that's Kermit. That's who Kermit is in his soul. That's how he introduces right, himself. Right, right. And then you know, the Star Trek: The Next Generation ones, like you know, those I bought or my mom bought for me yeah, in like 1987, great. 1988. Mm. And um, the most recent purchases in there though are from earlier this year because you know, <clears throat> can't stop. Right. Won't stop. So you're committed. You're you're the real deal. I'm living you, the life. You're living the life. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you ever had a chance to see uh, the Douglas Copeland exhibit at the art gallery. Yeah. Do, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Mind blowing. Yeah. The stuff, like this guy. Okay, he's famous and he's written books and everybody knows Douglas Copeland, but people did not know that Douglas Copeland kept all this like crazy memorabilia in a warehouse yeah, all this somewhere, ephemera. like in a yeah. lockup, and and then he they let him do an a, like an installation. Yeah, I was my girlfriend and I went. We were just staggered at what he had put together and the stuff he had. Yeah. And you know, yeah. parts of it were like, okay, I'm gonna put all these up and I'm gonna spray paint everything white. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? It was a it was an amazing wasps nests and things too. Like, yeah, that that exhibition and honestly, a lot of even the work that he, you know, a lot yeah. of his writing is about um, who we are as you know various generations. You know, exactly. as represented by the things that we hold, you know, hold valuable. You exactly. Know? It points. It point. All roads lead to Rome, right? Like yeah. it's like you start there. And and here I am sitting across from you. So the so this glass case full of these little funnily figurines enough, or whatever so it informs you who you are. Douglas Copeland though, because when I, I was telling my husband Paul, uh, I'm gonna have Gary Jones come on. He's like Gary Jones. Well, first of all, he was like, 
remember at the Leos when like he and Ken Lawson did that bit, you know, and he was the guy and then Ken was the rocker. I'm like, yeah, that's from the show. And he's like, okay, so my Gary Jones, my, there was like a double bill on sci-fi for years. I remember watching it, you know, in the nineties. And it was like this, like William Shatner hairpiece and then Douglas Copeland doing this interview against a white background. And so like we, we watched these recently. So in my husband's mind, like those, he's like a, those yeah. two, you, you, yeah, and he Douglas can, Copeland he's the are, kind of guy that can connect those things, yeah. but holy moly, is that ever kind of esoteric? And, uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's in uh, six degrees of, uh, you know, of Kevin Bacon land where you can yeah. kind of join things up. Okay, I want to join, no, 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 childhood, childhood, okay, your childhood. You take, would, take, where so, are we going? You're, let's say you're 11 years old, that's a great age. Um, before teen years you know what that's actually you kind of landed on like you chose a good year i'll tell you why i was uh even though i've been working as an actor performer blah 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 blah, all the stuff in your in your um, intro to me for close to 40 years in vancouver if you had met me as a kid you would never get any inclination None. I mean, I was like a sleeper cell, right? Like mm. nothing. You would have not known anything about me in terms of what I do now. But there was like an anomaly, like a blip on the bell curve when we had moved from Wales. I lived, I was born in Wales and I lived there till about 10, moved to Montreal when I was 10, and we lived there till I was about 12 until we moved back. In actual Montreal or in, like the in, West Island? Uh, Ville d'Anjou. Oh, okay. Ville d'Anjou. <clears throat> so a suburb. But I went to this school and, um, and uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't anything special. I was just like a regular kind of student. And, uh, and but at one point the, the, the school was putting on like, a, I, I, I think it was a variety show or a Christmas show or some kind of production, right? That, mm-hmm. That, and, and each grade was asked to do something. And, and uh, so our teacher, uh, our homeroom teacher was telling us about this. And she goes, so we're gonna need this kind of scene and this kind of thing, and we're gonna need that. And then she says, it would be good if we could do something funny, like a comedy skit or something. And she goes, is anybody interested in doing that? Don't ask me why my hand went up. I put my hand up and I was the only one in the class who put his hand up. And she goes, oh, Gary, great. So you're gonna do a comedy bit for the show. No idea what I was gonna do. It was like my hand just went in the air and I and the other kids, were, the other kids were looking at me like, what, really? And I was like, well, I, I, I guess I have to. No, I couldn't take my hand back. I never thought that there was an option to go, oh, nobody else wants to do it, then I'm not doing it. I just like was like, yeah, okay. So I was like, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do because I'm the only one doing it? And I swear, I came up with this idea that I'd seen, you know, it's been, it's been around before, it's an old trope, but I decided to be a comedic uh, classical pianist. Hmm. And I would come in and I would, you know, the Victor Borga kind of, you know, where you sort of like do a run down the keys and fall off the stool, that kind of thing. So, so I, I, I dreamed up a bit. I put together a bit and the way I put together this bit was my parents. I went home, I looked to my parents' records and we didn't have a big record collection, but they had a classical piano record. 
So I put that on, I listened to it. Wait, it wasn't even a comedy album of like funny classical piano. It was no, this like- was, This was the real deal. This, this was, was a serious, serious like, you know, Shostakovich or whatever it was. Yeah. I can't remember, but it was, a, it was a piano. Russians hitting keys very hard. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, was a, it was a regular classical piano uh, album. That, we, that basically I didn't even know we had because we really never played it. My parents weren't, class, I don't know how we ended up with it, but I'll move beyond that. Anyway, I found it. I was like, oh my God. Okay, cool. Listen to it and it's full of piano bits. So I then picked one of the songs and I went, okay, this is going to, I'm going to work. This is going to be my bit. And I then listened to it over and over and over, like endlessly. And, and I'd, I'd take the needle off, I'd put it back on and I'd listen and I'd go, okay, okay, that bit ends there. That's that long. Maybe I can do this in, in there. So I, you know, I came out, my mother, oh. I had a black jacket for some reason. My, and my mother cut some, I said, I need tails. I said to my mother, I need a jacket with tails. And of course, you know, she's like, how, may, how are we going to find a jacket with tails for an 11 year old kid? So all she did was she found some fabric. She didn't even really know what I was doing. My parents did not pay any, any attention to what I was doing, except for the fact that I was playing this album, this one song, once I decided what the song was, over and over again. From an album that they probably bought by mistake. They bought don't know why mistake. they have They're it. They're like, why do we even have this album? So anyway, <clears throat> so I, I told her that I needed tails and she got some black fabric cut two pieces in the shape of tails, you know, like like uh, boat sails or whatever, and just pinned them yeah. to the back of my jacket so that I looked like I had a set of tails. So that when I could come down, when I sat down <laughs> with my back to the audience, yeah. I would flick them and sit down. You know, you could like go to Victor Borga, you could go to Bugs Bunny. Remember Bugs Bunny? Oh, yeah. And like, like that whole thing. I just basically ripped it off, but I thought well, uh, that this is, I feel comfortable doing this. I'd never done anything like this in my life. So come the night of the, um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> come the night of the, uh, <clears throat> the performance, the, I took the record with me and the record was, was uh, supposed to be played on a turntable in the wings. Mm -hmm. It was no sound system. They just put it on. It was like, okay, put this on first song and then crank it. Right. And I'll do the rest. And I walked out like I was this <laughs> famous pianist. They introduced me. I sat down and then I looked and then I looked as if like and nodded as if I was nodding to the conductor <laughs> or, the, or the orchestra. And I nodded. And um, and that meant there's your cue. Put the needle on the thing. Well, the person didn't do it. Like so something happened and I nodded and nothing happened. And they were like. I I either something like the record wasn't turning or something kind of messed up, and that was I think the first time I improvised, and that was a that was a moment where I I didn't know that was going to happen wow. because I was expecting I've worked this out, I come out, I bow, I sit down, I nod to you, you put the thing on the thing, and I start doing my bit. Well, it didn't happen. It's like the birth of a superhero right here. Yeah, that was like, like so. It's all instinct. It was all instinct, and I look and I made a bit out of not having the bit, and people started laughing already, and I was like, oh, they're laughing at the the mistake, and I'm go and me going with it. They didn't know 
that that was not a bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it was kind of, it was like a snake eating it, eating its own tail. So anyway, when the, when they finally dropped it on the record and it played, then I did the bit and, uh, and it went really well. And the people were like, what? Cause whenever, if you see an 11 year old who's not known as a performer mm. or the class clown or whatever, and you see them do a bit that it's worked out. Yeah. They're gobsmacked. The two most gobsmacked people were my parents. Yeah. So so after the show, everybody's mingling and I'm hanging out with my parents and people are coming up to them going, oh my God, your son is hilarious. And my mom's like trying to go with it. Like, yeah, yeah, he is. They're like, where did that come from? Not a clue. So that was, but, but then nothing, but then it was like, then I went dormant. I... Like I said, I was like a sleeper cell. Wait, 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 wait. But how did you, at 11 years old, feel as you were getting those laughs? Amazing. Inf yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And I could go back. This is so cool. Like, uh, I can't remember the last time I've spoken about this, but you, you, the fact that you said 11 years old, I'm sure that that was the year that it happened. Yeah. So it's really cool to be able to kind of bring this back for myself. And I just remember it was kind of like an like something woke up in me like that I'd never experienced before yeah I was always kind of like a fun kid and I and I had friends and I could make them laugh and whatever but it net that there was never any uh clocking like oh this could mean something or this could go somewhere it was only in something tangible like putting a bit together that you have thought out I honestly uh Sabrina I didn't even know I couldn't have even described to you what a bit was. Yeah. What is the, like, what is the lesson from that though? Like, I want to take a lesson, you know, from looking at that story. Cause a lot of it is also, it's a little spooky. I gotta say, cause it's almost like the universe is acting through you. I'm not saying that there's some Star Wars stuff, but you put up your hand without even intending to put well, up your you hand. Well, you could, yeah, listen, you know? I, I, I'll I, go down that road with you easily. It's about uh, instinct, you, like. I, I would say that, uh, you know, you mentioned the universe. I go, yeah, I, listen, I'm on board with that because I think that th there's, there's, there's things afoot that mm. we, that we, uh, that are, that are intangible, that are concepts that we don't really know about. And you could even say that, that if you want to call me a, a, a puppet, be in that moment being controlled by um by by a higher power yeah. then then forget the bit that I did but just in, sitting in the class when she asked for a comedy bit that that uh, and I was a puppet and my hand was raised mm. my hand was pulled up by the master the, the you know the cosmic puppeteer mm. pulled my hand up and kept it up and and didn't pull anybody else's hand up because it was meant for me to do this I was not meant to collaborate i was meant to do this on my own and have this personal experience and it did i think back to that now and i have to say that i'm kind of amazed that it happened because it's so separate mm. and it's so buried in my past because i didn't uh i i went on to to go to high school and blah 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 blah, blah. but and i was always known as a funny guy guys who were academically smarter than me way smarter than me sought me out hmm. oh god this sounds weird talking about myself like this but it's true guys that i hung out with were brainiacs 
and I and I was and I was a dismal student, failing. I went to summer school every year. I failed. I I don't even know how I got through high school. Barely, skin of my teeth. Mm. But I hung out with like these smart guys. And school is not for everybody. No, but but academic I, but is just I, one way of measuring it, stuff, it, right? Exactly. And and if you took away and if you and if you took away the labels of like oh you're more academic or you're more intellectual or you're more this or that, what it came down to was that I, was that I had something that I brought to their lives mm. that they simply couldn't do. They were great at school. They got insane grades. Um, like one guy I hung out with, he was a really fun guy, but he went on to uh, to start, you know, he went to McMaster University for engineering and then he moved to the States and started his own engineering company. Right. So he's like that, we're talking that kind of guy, like he was that good, he started his own company. And then another uh, buddy, buddy of mine I hung out with a lot, um, uh, got into, you know, worked for Citibank and ran a department uh, computer department, you yeah. know? So these are guys who are smart guys, but I had something that they didn't have. Now, looking back, I can say that to you, but at the time I would, I would, I would say to you, Sabrina, that I had nothing. I, I, I didn't, I would say that. That hurts my heart to hear well, like a young person hurts, say that it, it they hurts have my, nothing. It hurts my heart a little to say it too, because so much value was placed on academia yeah. that 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 is what I stacked myself up against. Mm. I did not sit there and go, yeah, well, try to tell a story like I do. Try to make people laugh like I, I it didn't it didn't land because the message that was constantly pounded in was do well at school. Yeah. Do well. So I hung out. I was like, you could say I was was I smart by association? Yeah. I don't know, but these guys knew they're like, we need him with us because it's just not the same. So if you wanna if you wanna say that that the 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 bit at the piano years earlier aside, th this other thing it it maybe that awoke something in me that then sort of like began to live and breathe, and that was my social. Um, that, that was like a, a way of kind of seeing the world. Yeah. That was, yeah. So I would say that a lot of where I'm at right now and the kind of person, if we hung out, you, you would, you would basically find out how I see the world mm. and I see the world slightly differently, like kind of in a slightly wonky way that I would bring to you. And I wouldn't, you know, it would not surprise me if you to go, oh, I, I hadn't thought about it like that. Like, oh yeah, now, you know, it's like- That's so, why AI will never replace yeah. humans. They can't, they know, can't because, look at the world yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different way. Like if you ask yeah. uh, chat GBT to, to give you something versus asking me the same question, I could give you a, a kind of a version of what I think you want, but, but what you get from me then would be was, you know what that makes me think of? Or yeah. you know where my mind goes with this, and then take you somewhere where I give you something that you didn't ask for, but that is of, but they still of value. Yeah, you know. So, so uh, over the years, I've come to more value what I have because I see it in the response from people. They, it, it, it has value and it has worth, but it's not a tangible. 
Uh, you know, I couldn't graduate and get a job like, uh, you know, at Citibank. So, but, but, but the, the, but the impact of that, of that lessness yeah. or the, or the, le the, you know, the less than in that world, that was massively impactful for me because I constantly, I was questioning myself. I couldn't understand why these guys hung out with me when they were obviously in my mind, smarter than me because they got better report cards than me. It was literally that simple. Yeah. And so I, but I questioned myself constantly. So what I did was I questioned my worth mm. all the time. Oh, I have a question. It's good that I have a question, right? Cause that's kind of what the show is. What do you think high school you, who's hanging out with these, you know, academically yep. successful dudes, would think of the life that you have built for yourself now. You know, this kind of life where, I mean, we were talking in the elevator coming up about, you know, you were just in, you were just in the States at a, at Dragon Con, you know, uh, representing Stargate, you know, you're, yeah. you're hosting award shows, you're playing with Ken Lawson, yeah. which we will talk about and we'll talk about Stargate too. Yep. You know, but like to, to see all of this, this, um, in a lot of ways, it's unpredictable and not as linear as I'm going to do well in school, get my engineering degree, start an engineering company. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But like, what do you what do you think you would think of that young version of of you? I think the I think the young version of me would be more shocked than anything, more really really stunned and shocked that I ended up in the industry that I not not only ended up in the industry but worked a lot in it mm. but no, but but have many many relationships in it and 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 have done different gigs and if that younger version of me you're going to make me cry but that younger version of me could see could see me now yeah uh he it would blow his mind yeah and you know I have to say just to touch very quickly on this idea of of a linear track, um, uh, back in Ontario, when when you in high school, they had grade thirteen. OAC, right? I I did OAC, so they I had know. Grade thirteen, and grade thirteen <laughs> was essentially the like a kind of like a tester kit for university. Yeah. You know, like all the the courses were really hard. I barely got enough credits to get through grade 12. Mm. And, and, but, but what it meant was that if I wanted to go to grade 13, I could do it. I, at that time, I said to my parents, I, I'm so sick of school. I can't stand school. I'm not academic. I don't want to go to grade 13. I want to take a year off. I just want, I don't want to do it. Yeah. And my parents, God bless them, very blue collar, very like, no, you have to succeed. The only way you can succeed is through education. Yeah. The only way you can do it is through school. And they just like, they put the full court press on me. They're probably scared. Oh, you know? I was I was freaked out. I was terrified. No, I think they were probably scared. Oh, they were. Yeah. Yes, yes. To have a kid come to them and basically say to them that chance that you never had, I'm rejecting. Yeah. They were like, no, that can't happen because that's what they hung their hat on, right? Yeah. So, uh, so they they put the full core press on me. I went to grade thirteen. I took six subjects. I failed five. So that was a completely, you know, you want to call it a wasted year? Yeah, it was a wasted year. But what it meant was the implication of that was 
If you went to grade 13 and you and you did well, then you could you you could either go to university if you chose or you could kind of go, no, I'm going to go to college. You had a choice of two things, right? Yeah. If you only got grade 12, you could only go to college. Yeah. University was out. You could you wouldn't get accepted. So then that that limited my, you know, my options, but I said, "Okay, fine. I'll go to I'll go to um college." And I didn't know what to take. I had no idea. I didn't know enough about myself. I didn't know uh, what, like, and I went to my mom and I said, what should I take? And my mom, again, God bless her soul. She said, well, why don't you take business administration? And I said, well, what is that? And she goes, well, it's where you, you know, administrate business. I was like, well, what does that mean? She goes, well, business needs administrating. And all she did was use various iterations of those two words. I still didn't know what it meant, but the, the, what was implied was you can get a job. Yeah. So I was like, okay, with a pension and a dental plan. So I, so I signed up, I went to Mohawk College and I signed up for their business program. <laughs> And I was kicked out after the first semester. I I was, they kicked me out. I failed so dismally mm. because that's not the way my brain was wired. But I didn't yeah. know this yet. I was I was on a learning path, right? Yeah. So I come home, my 19th birthday. I had to, my mom, I walk in the door. My mom's like, hey, happy birthday. She's making a cake. I go, I just got kicked out of college. She went, oh my God. You're like, and I'm not kidding you. She goes, you're going to be a loser. You're going to be a loser. You're going to be a bum. It was, this was all my mom's fear speaking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I, I'll, it's like, it's like it happened uh, five minutes ago, sitting at the kitchen table and just dejected. And she was just going at me saying, you know, thinking that she's motivating you or thinking something. that she's motivated and she's speaking from a terrified place. Yeah. Like, oh my God, you failed. You got kicked out. What are you going to do? You're going to be nothing. You're going to be a loser. And I joked about this later. And I said, <sighs> I said, well, those words, if anything, you know, I, you know, uh, unconsciously prepared me for a life in the world of theater and acting, uh, those, uh, <laughs> she actually did me a huge favor by introducing me to that concept. Anyway, I, I, uh, I said, I was so panicked. I said, okay, I'll, I'll go back. I'll take it again. But this time I'll go to, I'll go to, I'll take a night school course in accounting so to ease my workload. Well, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I finally quit. And I said, okay, what am I going to do? I have to do something. And I went back to the college. I looked at their program, uh, their calendar, course calendar. And then I re realized, oh, they have like radio journalism they have uh you know uh, radio announcing then they had advertising and, mm. and so i read a little bit about that i put these three choices advertising being my third choice submitted it and i got in and then i was like oh once i got in it was a mixture of art business creativity this now started to speak to me uh, and i did really well in that course i graduated that was a big deal. Ooh. And I left and I got a job in the world of advertising. And for a couple of years, I was a creative director at an advertising agency uh, with a buddy of mine who'd started up this small agency. And I was, design I was designing billboards. I was mocking up ads. I was writing copy. It was like, it was very, very fulfilling. And then the cosmic puppeteer Mm. put a newspaper in front of me with a, with a, the tiniest ad for improv comedy classes. And I read that and a voice spoke to me 
as if it was somebody in the room with me. And yeah. the voice, I'll never forget it. It said, if you don't do this, you will regret it for the rest of your life. Like as clear as a bell, Yeah. right? I didn't even really know what improv comedy was, but because of that voice, I called up another friend of mine who was very much like me, like a good storyteller, very funny guy named Kevin uh, Frank. He, he works in Toronto now. He's a great guy, very funny improviser. And I go, Kev, Kev, um, listen, um, I'm going to take uh, improv comedy classes. And he goes, okay. And I go, I need you to take it with me because I, I, I don't think I can do it by myself. And he goes, okay, okay, what is it? And I, and I go, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But it's, it's two words, just like business administration. Yes. It's improv comedy. It's improv and it's comedy. <laughs> but I think, but I think the fact that there was comedy in the title. Yeah. And, and Kevin, he just goes, okay, I'm in, I'm in. And we signed up. He yes and you. He completely was like one of the first major yes and. And, he's, and we signed up. We took the, we took the, we took the, the course and it was an introductory month long course. Within that course, they told us about Second City. They told us about Toronto theater sports. We started taking uh, uh, classes at Second City and both Kevin and I were plucked out of the workshop system to work for Second City, to be part of <gasps> Second City. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin, Kevin got on to Kevin got onto the Toronto main stage. Yeah. And I was chosen for the National Touring Company. Wow. And when I when I got into the National Touring Company, I I was kind of working on weekends. So I still had my advertising job. So I had a I had a nine to five regular uh, job. Then I had this weird kind of funky thing with all these freaks and geeks on the weekends. And what changed that was the fact that at some point the touring company put together a tour. Mm. And I was, I didn't even clock that. There I go, we're touring. Like really, where? They said, oh, we're going out to Winnipeg and we're gonna gig along all the way. And I said, oh, wait a minute. How long is that gonna be? And they said, oh, three weeks. And I just about shit my pants. Yeah. I go, I have to go tell my boss that I'm going on tour with this thing. He was like, oh, well, that's a problem. And I said, oh, but I have to do it because I'm part of this troupe. Yeah. And his second city was, uh, you know, it's fabled, right? Like it was amazing to be working for them. And he goes, okay, tell you what, I'm going to take you off salary. You're not going to get a weekly paycheck, but I'm going to, I'm going to make you freelance. So I'll pay you by an hourly rate. So whenever you're in, you clock in and you'll get paid for the hours you work. And that way this won't be an issue. And yeah. I go, oh my God, thank you so much. I go on tour. I come back, I quit hmm. because I found my tribe. And you that found was your people, the I freaks and people. geeks. So that was the leap. See, it's not linear. This is what I'm, I, yeah. I took a long time to explain this, but it's not linear. But the, whatever was awakened in me or shown to me when I did a bit as an 11 year old, it went dormant again, but it was there. Yeah. And it just, and my, and life was just going, okay, look, dude you are not going to work in advertising. So yeah. it's nice here. But now, and I, it was literally like being picked up and put it, picked up off one track and just dumped on another one. Yeah. And then that, that other track was, was where I was supposed to be. The lesson really is about <clears throat> listening to that voice. Yeah. The voice, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. that if it's, it is speaking to us and it's up to us to listen and to, and to act on it, would it, you know, and you're not a loser. You, you are, <laughs> <laughs> 
which was which was the fear as we sit here at my kitchen table. You know, right. you're talking about what was, and you know the fears that that your mom had. You know that you wouldn't be. And I think like I kind of get it that idea of like you're not going to be fully engaged. You are not going to be able to like actively participate in life and support yourself in, in and, society. You know, like I get and it's you know it's very like a, back then it was you know we used different words then and yeah. people learn in different ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but but what did what did your family end up thinking about? You know, this life that that you've built for yourself. Was there a sense of relief that, like, okay, he's found his people and he's he's going to be okay? I I don't think I don't think it ever truly landed in them. I think that I think the only uh, my dad passed away like seventeen years ago. My mom is still alive, and whenever I talk to her. All I need to talk to her is about writing for the debaters. Mm. Are you right? Mom, I'm, I'm working. I'm right. What are you working on? Uh, and I, I just, now I've gotten to the point where I go, uh, I just, uh, CBC. Oh, CBC. Good. Great. Is it going well? Yeah. Oh, good. That's all she needs. Yeah. But back in the day when I was starting out, I had not, uh, I felt like it became evident that I had nothing tangible to give them. Yeah. I couldn't say, I'm on this television show that you can see. I'm I'm doing this. So it was, I was just like, kind of like thrashing around trying to make something happen. And my parents, you know, so I was in, uh, in BC and my parents were in Ontario. And so they didn't see me a lot. And they just knew that I was somehow able to, I'm, do, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. That was enough. And all I needed to tell them was like, mom and dad, this is what I do. So I, I'm not changing this. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And don't worry about me. I can make my rent. I can put food on the table. And they had to kind of be okay with that. They had to, they, they, they had to let go yeah. of a bunch of what, of what they thought in order for me to let, to do my thing. They didn't yeah. understand it, but they're like, okay. He's fine. They didn't understand it. I wasn't phoning them up for money. I wasn't yeah. phoning them. I wasn't saying I'm in trouble. I'm, I I've embezzled saying. from my auto, auto workers union. <laughs> <laughs> Come and bail me yeah. for the jail. Yeah. So they just went, okay, fine. Yeah. We, don't, we don't get it, but we get it enough that you're okay. And yeah. that was enough for them. And, and, and it allowed me to just go, okay, I don't have to worry about that. Like the pressure of that. And I just went on and just did my own thing. You know? All right. Well, I'm going to... Uh... I'm going to jump now because mm. we're not doing linear, as you can tell. That's not mm -hmm. how we do things here. Um, I want to talk about Stargate. Yeah. Stargate SG-1, mm -hmm. Stargate Atlantis. We'll right. talk about Harriman. Right. Um, iconic and beloved to this day. Like, I don't even think it's... How long has it not been on the air? You know, it's this, this massive juggernaut with yeah. some of the best, yeah. most supportive, generous kooky fans love oh. the stargate fans but you know you you show up to your first day you know on the stargate set like what kind of expectations you know did you did you have you know stepping into that role and onto that set uh and how did the experience like differ from those expectations i had i had uh the only the only kind of like if you want to call it an expectation or 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 a pot uh hang hanging my hat on a kind of po a possibility was that that was when i auditioned for the show my agent had said to me <clears throat> they're they're uh they're they're gonna do the stargate um television series and uh and i had, and i had seen the movie because back in the day there were only like six movies ever in rotation and stargate was one of them you know like in, mm -hmm. in the pocket when it came out so i'd seen the movie so i kind of knew what it was about and kurt russell and uh 
and um, James Bader and all that. And so I was like, oh yeah, okay, I know that. And she said, so, so you're going into audition for this character, watch the film again. And there's a character in there in the control room who's kind of like, he's in like a Hawaiian shirt, but he's like, uh, he's like an IT genius at the time. And think, think things like uh, uh, they need him more than he needs them kind mm, of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. And she said, but don't mess this up. Don't and like, and it was weird for my agent to say that to me because you, 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 you generally go to an audition with no intention of messing it up, but she made a point of, because she said this character may recur. Mm. And of course may recur means, uh, m- you know, more money, money for her. And like, you know, like it could be something. Don't mess this Don't up. Don't mess this up. Don't screw this up. Don't screw it up. <laughs> I can't think of anything that would make me screw up more than somebody telling me not to. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people, uh, I've, to- I've told this story to fans uh, at conventions because all they see is the finished product. They yeah. see me, they see me on, you know, doing the, you know, having that look, I'm at the com- keyboard and then I'm looking at the Stargate. Then, then there's that cock of the head and the kind of the slightly quizzical, like, hey, what is that? What's going on here? Mm. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, but they don't know how I got the gig. A lot of people, so I should. So I so I go to the I go to the audition, and they uh, for anybody listening who's a Stargate fan, you know that it's all Chevron one encoded, Chevron two encoded about how the Stargate lights up and goes around, and Chevron seven is locked. You know, I they they gave me my audition sides, and all my lines were that's all they were Chevron one encoded. Then they would cut away. To, to Michael Shanks firing a machine gun yeah. and yelling and doing his lines. Then they'd cut back to me, Chevron 2 encoded. And I was looking for some lines. Yeah. I have no lines other than the, uh, listing the Chevrons being encoded. For your size. For my, for my audition size. Yeah. So I'm like, well, what it, first of all, what's a Chevron? I have no <laughs> No clue. I didn't even know what a Chevron was. And I'm like, you were set up to mess it up. Set up set don't up. mess it up, Gary. But yeah, like- don't mess it up. Here are the sides. Try to make sense of this. So, so like, uh, so like any actor, I show up. First of all, I walk in and the, the director of the two part, uh, the season one two-parter, episodes one and two, was a guy named Mario Azapardi, and he is a, a director, uh, done a ton of stuff. He had, and again, this is how the universe works. I had just done a gig with him. Oh. He had directed me in like um, the Twilight Zone or some other some other kind of like science fictiony kind of thing. Yeah, and I hadn't played anything sci- like I pl- I played like a ballistics expert. You know, like like I came in, I gave I gave the the lead character this ballistics report, and then I left. But I I did it in a in such a way that he loved it, and I did like two takes, so I didn't eat up his day, so he was happy. Mm. So he remembered me and he, cause he'd only just worked with me a few weeks prior. So when I walk in the room, this guy, he's a big loud guy from Malta and he goes, Oh my God, it's you. It's you chief. I thought you'd be perfect for this. Oh my God. And he went on and on and on. And of course you hear that as an actor, you're like, all right, I'm in. This is, this is good. This is a good thing. And, and, uh, and so I, they go, okay, do, do the audition. And I thought 
what am I going to bring to this? Because every actor who shows up for an audition, most of the time you go, you'll say to them, uh, they go, do you have any questions? And you go, well, I kind of worked on something. I worked something up here. Can I just try it out? And if it's not what you want, then yeah. let me know. And I'll, you know, you can redirect me or whatever. Because they love that because they like to know that you can bring something. Yeah. And that if it's not what they want, that they can direct you and you can just, uh, you know, adjust, right? Yeah. All I had was comedy I did because the show hadn't been made I didn't know the tone of the show I didn't know if it was going to be funny I, I just thought well I'll just be funny so I started listing the chevron every time they cut to me and be like chevron uncoded chevron two encoded <laughs> chevrons re-encoded and I would like and I built it up like I was bored or it was they were bothering me yeah and I finally got to the end and I went full Jerry Lewis at the end for Chevron. And I went, Chevron 7 locked. I said it like that. That's how I delivered my line for Chevron 7 locked. <laughs> Chevron 7 locked. And I look over and Brad Wright and Michael Greenberg and the, the guys have their heads on the table and they're pounding the table. <laughs> they, are la they are laughing so hard because they cannot believe what I did with a list of chevrons and I ended up getting the part and when I spoke to Brad later I said I said Brad remember my audition he goes oh my god yeah he goes I, I have that on tape somewhere and I said why did you hire me <laughs> like I go obviously I didn't know the tone of the show and obviously it wasn't what you wanted or envisioned and he goes yeah but that didn't matter that did, we didn't we didn't care about that. Mm -hmm. What we cared about was that you you were the only one who did anything with it. Everybody else apparently had come in and just listed them in a very serious like oh my god it's life and death like Chevron one encoded Chevron two encoded but I turned it into like a, a clown car and and they were la and the fact that they were laughing they were like oh god this guy come on yeah you know, we, it, that's what happens it's like. It's like that's the that's the kind of intangible when you when you audition, you don't know what's going through a director's head, but it's essentially can I work with this dude? Yeah. What's this dude gonna give me if I ask for it? What what is and what's he gonna bring on his own? You you ne you tend not to think of that. And in the early days when uh, Stargate got on the air at ninety seven, so this is ninety seven that I yeah. auditioned for it. Right, it was on for ten years. Went off the air for on 2007 and it's still in reruns still uh, sci-fi conventions but in that moment i think brad j thought that yeah this guy will be fun yeah and if you want to i can work with that i can work with yeah. that and if you think and if you tie anything back to my youth to go we want to hang out with this guy because he's fun that would be the equivalent of me hanging out with all my smart buddies going, this guy brings something that we, that's unexpected. Yeah. That so makes us laugh. I think the lesson too is, is to, uh, as an agent to threaten your client. <laughs> I think it's important. Yes. That really yeah. Absolutely threaten. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, I am not just a fan of sci-fi, but I am also a fan of fans. I, I, I love the work, but I also love how, how fans love the work. And nowhere more do we get to see that than at 
sci-fi conventions. Tell me about some of the the adventures that you've had, you know, well, and what you've learned from fans along the way. I did. I have learned something. Uh, I I learned something profound. It affected me profoundly. So let me just uh, rip open myself here and tell you how in the early days how judgmental I was. Mm. Uh, about these people, like, who are you people? You know, first of all, they invited me to, I got invited to uh, to a convention in BC, in Vancouver. And, and I turned it down because I just said, well, like, why? Why do you want me there? And they're like, well, because you're the, you're the Chevron guy. And I said, yeah, but like, you don't really, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not one of the leads. I'm not on screen. So I was pushing, I was like uh, rejecting it. And they said to me, no, you should come. I think you'd be surprised at how many people, how many fans know you. And I yeah. was like, seriously? They were like, yeah. So I went and and they were right. Like people, as soon as I walked in the hotel lobby, they're like, oh my God, the Chevron guy. But like a lot of them, right? And these are people who, uh, you know, I, that... Under normal circumstances, with through my own judgments, I would like I would never hang out with these people. Hmm. Like, who are these people? I, you know, you, you're you're shut-ins who watch a sci-fi show, and you're this, you're that. I'm laughing because, ha! You must have had an education in this. I, then. they, these people, these fantastic people, <laughs> yeah. over a course of time, completely schooled me. Yeah, they completely schooled me because of my own personal judgments. I didn't realize the distance that I was keeping between myself and the fans mm. and they, and they, what they wanted to do was they wanted to talk to the actors and talk about how much they loved the show and what the show meant to them. And I wouldn't go there for the longest time because I was like, I just, this is too weird for me yeah. at some point, And I can't tell you when it just clicked over when I realized after talking to many fans who would like, it's like, you know, three ladies would show up at my table, right? To, to buy some uh, photographs or an autograph or whatever. They, three of them would show up and I'd start chatting with them. And I go, oh, so are you, uh, you're like best friends? They go, no, we, we, uh, we, we come to these conventions together. I go, wait a minute, like, where do you live? And like, it'd be like, well, one lives in Florida, one lives in Washington, the other one lives in like New Jersey. And I go, so you don't really see each other. They go, no, 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 we plan, we're good. We, we love coming to these things. We plan our holidays, mm. like from work holidays to come to things like uh, uh, Creation uh, Con in uh, Chicago or whatever. Yeah. I started to go, oh, wait a minute. Okay, there's something afoot here. And it, it began to then dawn on me that I was being invited to be part of a community. Yeah. And as soon as I, as soon as that landed in me, everything shifted because I saw that they were not judgmental. They, they, it was like, if you go to a fan convention, it's the most embracing, it's a massive love-in, but it's around a show. It's around a television show, but it's a love-in. Yeah. They, everybody is accepted. No, you know, you know, outside of the hotel, some of these people could have the hardest time in life. Yeah. You know, not accepted, shunned, uh, mocked, whatever you want to say, because they, they because, you know, they, they're, they're socially awkward or they're, there's uh, issues about it. the minute they go into like, yeah. it's like stepping into like the TARDIS, 
they're in there, you're in it, right? Yeah. And and you're accepted. You're completely, yeah. not just accepted, it goes beyond it's that. Celebrated, it's loved, yeah. celebrated, uh, uh, embraced. And when I got that, I just went, okay, bring it on. I now, and then I just kind of, you know, that, that theater, um, that theater uh, game where you, it's like a trust exercise where you fall backwards and somebody will be there to catch you. You know, it was like that. It was like, I could then fall backwards into the, into the convention. Well, you're like Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. Absolutely. <laughs> which, which I bawl my eyes out every time I yeah. see it. But it, it, it was like that. It was like, it was like, dude, you have to learn a lesson here. You were being invited. They're inviting me. Yeah. And yet, who am I to show up and be a dick? Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're flying me down. They're putting me up, but I'm not really going to be very connected to them. It all changed. Yeah. It all changed. And now I love chatting with them there. I just let them talk and just share stories with them. And um, it, it, it was a complete like tectonic shift when I understood the nature and the depth of their community. Yeah. So I love Stargate fans. They are great. Yes. They're fantastic. Yes, I agree. What are some of the things that they want to know? Like what, what are some of the questions that you get asked the most, you know, at your table or at your panels? Um, usually it's things like, it's things that, are, uh, that, that they think are like, oh, I'm going to get the inside scoop. It's like, oh, what was it like working with Richard Dean Anderson? And it's the most boring answer. Yeah. I go, I go, well, you know, he's a lovely guy. It was fine. But, but they don't, they, they, all they know is they see me on screen with him. So they think, oh, we're buddies. We hung out. Yeah. I go, no, it wasn't like that. The other question they come up with, and I don't know where the hell they get this from. What kind of crazy pranks did you pull on each other? Like the George Clooney thing, you know, where like mm. George Clooney was always pulling like uh, uh, pranks on other actors. And I would go, none. Like I like I wasn't I wasn't part of the show to that degree. Yeah, they did two hundred and fourteen episodes. I did a hundred and seven. So I did like a ton of episodes, but it's an illusion to see me on screen to think mm. I was ensconced in this in this kind of like culture on set. I would go in. There were there were occasional episodes where I would show up, get paid for a day's work, and and deliver one line yeah. and go home. And that was it, you know, like, so, but you see me in the episode and that, uh, so you're in that episode. It was a yeah. good job. It was a good gig. It was a great job. You know? Yeah. My husband job. actually, his first job in the industry uh, was- What does at, he do? What does your husband uh, do? Well, now he's an animation director mm. and also we co-own Fishflight Entertainment. Uh, yeah, say that again. We co-own Fishflight Entertainment, which is this company that you're sitting in right Did now. Did you say Fish Flight? Fish Fight. Fish. No, Fish Flight. Fish yeah. flight. Yeah, but he um, his first job was at Rainmaker Visual Effects, and he was um, he worked with Bruce Wallachin, and he was like the roto oh yeah he was like the rotoscoping guy. He would rotoscope like the pool of the Stargate. I wonder if he ever had to cut around your head, but you know that. See, see, okay. So when they ask me questions about the show, yeah, they ask me these generic questions, but I and and they they might say. And I try to, I, I, I call upon my improv background. So they might mention something about going through the Stargate or going off world. And I will say to them, well, do you realize that I never went through the, the puddle? They go, yeah, you did. And I go, no, I never did. You never saw me go through the puddle. They go, wait, wait a minute. And they say, yeah, but you were off world. And I go, yeah. And guess what? I would show up. They give me the script 
and it would say that I was off world. I was not in the control room. Me and Don Davis were on an, on a planet <laughs> off world. And I would, and I'd see that and I'd say to the director, like maybe it's Andy Makita or, um, you know, like some, one, one Peter. of the guys. Yeah. yeah. Or Peter Deloise. And I go, Oh my God, I'm off world. They go, yeah, yeah, it's going to be good. We're going to shoot outside and everything. And I go, yeah, but that means I go through the puddle. They go, Oh no. No, you don't go through the puddle. I'm like, what do you mean? How do I get there? How do I end up on that planet? And they go, well, you're just there. And I go, so you don't see me go through the puddle? No. I go, why? Why does everybody else go through the puddle and I don't go? They go, it, 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 you're one of those characters. It just, it's, it's too much money uh, visually with visual effects. It costs too much. I go, so you don't want to spend the dough showing fans me Sorry, walking through the puddle why would you cost more than other people because i'm because it's like every time they do it it's a it's a cost and they're like well does gary have to go through it no just put him there <laughs> so many things like that so that's the kind of thing i would talk to fans about yeah and they would love it and i i would engage them and i would lead them down a path <laughs> that they would never know about. So a lot of my stories at Stargate conventions are all about um, like behind the scenes stuff. You yeah. Know? Like there's one, there's one, there was one episode where I was, where, where Walter Harriman was driving and piloting an Alcash, which is like a giant um, alien spacecraft. Okay. So on first blush, yeah. You know, oh my God, this is so cool. Me thinking I'm finally off the bloody office chair that I was on for like 10 years. And I'm, and I'm piloting uh, uh, this Alcash. Andy Makita, a good buddy of mine, was directing that episode. I sit in the chair and we're, you know, we're setting up to shoot it. And I go, well, wait a minute. Hang on a second. I go, Andy, uh, how do I know how to fly this thing? <laughs> I go, it's really cool and I'm here and I'm in the chair, but I've never flown one of these before. How do I even know how to do it? His answer, uh, you just do. You just do. And I go, oh, do I find the owner's manual in the glove compartment and just kind of have a quick read through? You know, he's like, he's like, yeah, whatever, whatever you need to do to. And it, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that, like, Oh, you just do. Oh, you're just there. It just happens, you know, because because there's only so much screen time and they're not going to waste it on me. It's like, yeah. don't ask those questions about how you did that. You just did it. You just did it. Okay. You just did it. Shut up. Are you driving a alien craft? Then be happy. You know? Okay, fine. All right. Whatever. So those kinds of things and the fans. And when I mention it, they go, I know that episode. They remember it. And I go, well, let me just take you prior to shooting that scene and the conversation I had with the director. And then they love it. It's like the inside stuff. You know what I would love? Maybe I should produce this myself. A Stargate rewatch podcast where we, you know, they're very, they're famous now. Like the Sopranos guys have one where they sit down and they watch an episode, you know, together. And then there's like, you know, a commentary through I'm the gonna whole thing. I'm going to tell you, okay, just, just to uh, touch on that, like, I, I, the fact that you've mentioned that I've always wanted 
that to be a thing. And the reason why I even can talk about it was because when I was living in North Vancouver and Peter DeLuise, who's a good buddy of mine, yeah. he directed a million episodes. We did a two-part episode with Peter. Oh, I love that guy. Peter, he's up there. He's, he's on the wall. Somewhere. He's on the wall. So get this. So Peter calls me up one day and he goes, uh, he goes, hey, uh, he goes, are you around this afternoon? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, uh, he goes, I'm down at Sharp Sound, which is like the, the post-production place. And it was literally a 10-minute drive from my house where I lived in North Vancouver. Yeah. And he goes, he goes, um, I have to uh I have to do a director's commentary on a on a Stargate episode. And he goes, Do you wanna do you wanna come down and do it with me? And I said, Oh, okay. I go, first of all, I'm like, well, I'm not getting paid for this, right? And he goes, No, no, it's you're not getting anything. And he goes, In fact, I'm not really getting anything. It's just part of my contract, right? Yeah. And I go, well, uh, okay, so it's something to do. Something you know. to do. He got and and he <laughs> Peter had been I'd I'd worked with Peter enough that Peter knew that we could have fun. He you know, uh we, we always had fun on set together. But I remember saying to him, So so which episode is it that I'm in? What what's the one? He goes, Oh, you're not in this episode. <laughs> I go, I go, what? He goes, Well, you're not in it. I go, I'm not in it. Why do you want me to come and do this? Like what's some he goes, Oh, and he literally goes, Oh, come on, just come and do it, will you? This is so like I'm tired of talking about like camera angles and locations and costumes. Like he goes, like I, it's so boring. Yeah, yeah. He goes, I think the fans are bored. He goes, come down. And he goes, Tell you what, come down. You can you can talk about whatever you want. We'll watch the show together, and whatever comes to mind, you can and I went. You're on. So I show up, go to Sharp Sound. I'd never done a commentary before. Mm. And it's literally like a massive screen in front of you, like cinema sized screen. Yeah. And uh, two stools, a bottle of water, a couple of headphones. And, uh, and the guy in the, in the booth behind us goes, okay, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to hit play. And when I hit play and it, and it comes on the screen, he goes, uh, just start talking, just start talking. And he goes, and don't talk, and don't stop talking till the, uh, till, till it's over. I'm going to go, okay, okay. I had no idea what to expect. I didn't even know what the episode was because, <laughs> spoiler alert, I didn't use to watch the episodes. Wow. So I, so, so this That's is- That's shocking. Yeah. So these are examples of when I would show up and I would actually watch an entire Stargate episode mm. with Peter. And my, I made it my job to make Peter laugh. I would throw stuff at him and he would try to keep it together while doing while doing his director stuff. Yeah. And like Richard That's Dean Anderson. That's why he wanted you. That yeah. is why Richard he Richard Dean wanted Anderson you would come on screen and I'd go, I'd go, now who's that guy? <laughs> now who's that guy? And in and in one of the uh in, in one of the opening credit uh, scenes, there's like there's a picture of Richard Dean Anderson, and then right after I think there's like a there's like a spaceship flying off, and I go, Oh, so is that him flying home for to LA for the weekend after he's done work? And I would just like try to make him laugh all the time and um and talk about random stuff, random things, and we had the best time. Consequently, I've had fans come up to me many times yeah. at conventions and go, why did you and Peter stop doing those commentaries? Mm. Like what, like how come you didn't do more? And I said, well, it was, it was not MGM calling me up. It was Peter 
and he could kind of, he, they, you know, it's not like he was calling a buddy. Like I was on the show, so I, there was context. Hmm. But I said, it was Peter that did that. And I said, I'll tell you, I had the best time. And the fans would go, they were the funniest, uh, craziest commentaries that we'd ever, it, 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 they said it was like, unlike any other commentary. And they were sad that there weren't any more. So if you ever did something where you got somebody in and just played the episode and then and then they did the commentary. Okay, well, I think, how about this for, for charity we could do? Because I'm all about things for charity, especially for my Ukraine charity. I'm in. Maybe we'll, we'll get you. I'm we'll, in. we'll get Peter if he's available. We'll get Amanda, you know, and uh, we have a screening room here. Oh, my You God. know, we wouldn't, and oh I don't God. think there'd be any, like, uh, copyright stuff because we wouldn't be showing the episode. Like, we'd just be talking about it, just right? Just be talking no. about it. And, yeah. and 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 what you could do is you could, you could sync it up to say, we're going to be talking about this episode on this day and get fans to queue it up at home. We're going to do it. Watch it. And then as soon as it's like hit play, we'll all hit play at the same time. Yeah. And then we will start talking. Get me and McGillian in here. Oh, yeah. And you'll die. Like uh, he yeah. and I are really good buds. He's so funny. And he, and, and I mean, he was on uh, Atlantis. I was on SG1. We diss each other about that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was a secondary character on SG1, but I did 107 episodes, but he was a lead on on um, on uh, Atlantis. So he did less episodes than me. But like both of us have a kind of a, like an equal weight in terms of familiarity or fan recognition. Yeah. Kind of thing. But more to the point is we're always making each other laugh and having a great time, super comfortable with each other. And whoever you could get, it would be really, really fun. I, think, I love it. I I'm, think I'm fans doing, yeah. would go crazy for it. Really? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let this cook for a little bit uh, for the Anything charity. Anything I can do to, we'll do to it. help, I will. I'm, I'm in. Okay. I'm in well, for sure. Folks, I'm on the podcast committing to it. Okay. Okay. Uh, we will soon be coming to the end of this episode. And we have not yet spoken about Forgotten Masters. Yeah. Okay. So let's just jump right in. Yeah. Forgotten Masters was uh, came up because I haven't asked a question. No, I'm, I, you don't need to. You don't okay. need to. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one thing. I had this idea. It came to me because mostly because I wanted. To, well, not mostly entirely because I wanted to work with Ken Lawson. Yeah. That's it. Ken Lawson. I, I can't say enough things about that guy. He's beloved in the in the improv community. Yeah. He's the sweetest, fan, most fantastic guy. I love that he has guy. Such a good, he has such a good heart. Oh, my too. God. He's, and he's like 39 feet tall. 39 feet yeah. tall. Have you seen the length of his fingers? Well, I did because of on the on Forgotten Masters, we yeah. get to see him, you know. That's when you get to see you go, holy shit. Because he plays, he's very talented. You so know, what happened player. was I knew, I knew that Ken had played guitar for like 40 years, right? He's he's proficient, he's really good. But he's also one of my favorite improvisers to ever work with, because he's just hilarious, he's a genius, he's like, he's great fun to work with. And I, uh, something came up in me that I was like, I would love to do something with Ken. Mm. What could it be? And when I thought about his improv skills and his guitar playing virtuosity, yeah. I mashed the two of them up and I had this idea, the name Forgotten Masters came to me and I went to Ken and I said, Ken, what do you think about this idea? I got this idea 
because I want to work with you. I love you. I want to work with you. But I, what I also want to do is I want to find a, a, a vehicle that celebrates your guitar playing. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And I, so I briefly explained to him what it was. And I said, and I'm, I'm this guy who interviews all these guitar players, but you get to play each different guitar player on every ep on different episodes. He just goes, I'm in. We're and we're talking different genres, different of music, genres, different accents, rock, yeah. folk, uh, funk, um, um, experimental. experimental with all the pedals. Like so far we have six of them in, in the can. Season two is going to be uh, going to be uh, released on YouTube on October 13th. Season one's already there. You can go and see it. And t and but I have to tell you, one of the things that I wanted were like I said, if we're going to do this. Uh, it's not just going to be this goofy, like ridiculous interview. I, I said, I want the interviews to be rooted in some kind of truth or some kind of reality mm. so that we can springboard off it. So people listening, especially guitar players, would go, is this for real? Yeah. Like, is this actually, is this guy a guy? Is he a real guy? So what? So the so so the the first episode uh, uh, that you see where he plays a German uh, hard rock player named uh, Klaus Klaus Sch Klaus Schrader. Uh, yeah, let's talk about me. Yeah, no keyboards. He goes like, no keyboards. <laughs> what am I? Europe? Yeah, I mean, he like says things like this. I can barely hold it together. But, but you did. You did hold it. Together. I did hold it together. But that is an example of where when he and I were talking, he said, uh, he said, when I was growing up and learning guitar, I was a massive fan of the Scorpions, which were a German hard rock band, right? Yeah. And he goes, did you know that they lost their lead guitar player and the band auditioned 140 guitarists? Like this is real life, right? They auditioned 140 like, guitarists. Where have I heard this story before? Oh, wait. And so he, so, so I go, so your guy, Klaus, can be one of those guys yeah. that auditioned that didn't make it in. And he goes, yeah. And it came down to me and another guy. And the guy that's in the band now, that's the guy they chose. But Klaus didn't make it, but he got all the way down. So it means that he's still good. He's still great, but not quite what they're And so it's the difference between getting picked and being part of the Scorpions or 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 not getting picked and suddenly in Vancouver teaching a guitar workshop at Rufus Guitars. You know, like you're still good and you are a forgotten master. And that is an example of where we cherry picked real things to anchor the interview in and from there it could go anywhere. Enough that I want people to go, I know that happened with the Scorpions. I know that's, that's true. So yeah. is this actually one of the guys? That, so that's our that's our goal. And I'll say that once once Ken and I knew we wanted to do this very quickly, it 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 kind of we tried we tried we actually tried it on stage at theater sports hmm. and it just died a death. It just yeah. it didn't go anywhere because they, they were like, What is this? It's well even at the Leos, people were like yeah. What is what is who what are is, who, who are, are who are these guys? What is this? Yeah, and we did we and we presented as our characters. Yeah, right? you did. Super fun, super fun. But but again, as long as I have people going, are these real guys? Like, who are these people? So um so so with that in mind, that and then I happened to be working with a guy in town 
actor, writer, guitarist who has his own band called China Repair, um, John Murphy. And I was talking to John and John had happened as we were writing something in. And he goes, yeah, I'm really, really trying to get into more directing, do more directing. I want to, that's kind of where I want to go. And I, and I go, oh, really? Uh, I go, well, I mean, Ken Lawson and I have this thing that you might be interested in that. I tell him, he goes, oh my God, yes. Because John is a really good guitarist. Yeah. And if you can imagine that suddenly when John came on board, he and Ken can talk guitar language that yeah. I, do, I don't have that language. I can't talk. I can talk improv to Ken, but I can't talk guitar. So soon as they started talking, it was like listening to a, a, a couple of guys uh, talking Russian to each other. Yeah. I didn't know what they were talking about. Augmented sevenths and certain kind of pedals. And, oh, you've got that pedal. I've got that pedal. Blah, 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 blah. So John came on board. He's like, I want to do this. Then we called up our buddy that John and I knew, Ken didn't know, Mark Halliday. Mm -hmm. And Mark Halliday is a guy that uh, he's, a, he's a videographer, a director of photography, works in town. Everybody knows Mark. He does all the footage, uh, backstage footage for the Arts Club. You know, when you see, right. when, when you go on the Arts Club uh, web series, a, a website, and you see the little, you know, the, the little interviews and all that stuff. Yeah. That's where I met Mark because I was okay. doing a show. I was doing a show uh, with uh, that he came and filmed, interviewed me. Uh, Mark also... Uh, has filmed, has made his own short films. He's directed things. But more to the point was, it was every, the four of us suddenly had the same, yeah, the four of us. <laughs> He's got three fingers up, guys. Uh, the four of us all had the same. When I told Mark what it was and John approached him and Mark already knew me, knew I was a comedian. I don't think he knew Ken, but he knew John. Yeah. As soon as the four of us got together, it was evident that we were all on the same page yeah. and then it was like then it was like the great part of it is like you know like the mickey rooney thing is like oh i'm you know my dad's got a barn uh my mom could make costumes you know you start let's call, put on a show let's put on a show and you start calling in favors so i called up my friend julie mcafee who is a like a emmy award-winning hair uh a film that uh, is how you got that because this Julie, I've known incredible hair pieces. Ju that's Julie McAfee. She's she's Emmy award winning, but I've known her since like 1987. I met her on the set of Wise Guy when she was doing hair. Now she's like, you know, uh, oh my god. So yeah. I called Julie up and I just go, "Hey Jules, listen, I'm doing this thing with that that's kind of wig based." I go, "Is there any way?" And she goes, like, which she didn't even think twice about it. She goes, "Come over to my place with Ken." And she goes, I'll pull out the wig bin. And she goes, you guys can just root through it. So we were able to go through the Julie's wig bin and try on wigs. And that actually kind of informed some of the characters. Mm. And and so we, she, she said, just take them. So Julie is responsible for Ian Layton's hair. That the, that hair piece that Ian Layton wears yeah. is worth like two grand. Wow. Even though it looks like there's six hairs on my head, it's netting yeah. and, and it's wispy. And when I put it on, I'm, I look at myself, I go, oh my God, thank God I shave my head or keep it super short. I mean, all the, all the wigs uh, and the, and the goatees and everything. Okay, it's so like probably you, like real hair. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, you know, and you know about the goatees and the uh, wait till you see wait till you see in season two i've watched he, season two which did one? you see uh the folk guy the folk guy, the folk guy with, the, <laughs> with the with the unibrow 
<laughs> that came that came out of John saying this guy was from the seventies. Can we give him like a James Taylor-ish kind of thick mustache? Yeah. And and dark hair, right? And when and I said, Do you think we could give him a unibrow? And when the makeup guy put the unibrow on can, I think I laughed solidly for 15 minutes before we went and even shot it. Sitting on the stools, about to shoot, about to shoot. John and Mark are going, okay, we're like a minute away. And and uh, Ken and I are talking and Ken goes, um, Ken goes, yeah, so I'm going to play this guy really kind of low key and gentle. And, and he starts talking in a certain way and he goes, and I'm, I think I'm going to be Norwegian. I'm going to be Norwegian. This is a minute before shooting. And that is the 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 joy, the, uh, what can I tell you? And I go, oh my God, yes. And we both go, hey, John, uh, Ken's going to be Norwegian. And Ken's, uh, and John's doing something. He goes, uh, okay. <laughs> and suddenly we have an interview with a guy that previously, when we, when we dreamed him up, was not Norwegian. Yeah. And he was Norwegian on the spot. And it's one of my favorite interviews. And he's so funny. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's kind of, uh, kind of how it goes. And, and I just want to, uh, two, two more shout outs. One is that because I taught at the Vancouver film school, we were, we needed a makeup person. Yeah. And I was like, where am I going to get a makeup person? I went and I said to them, uh, do you have a list of graduates of like people who would might want to do this gig? And they gave me this full page mm -hmm. of graduates. And I just started going through them going through them people were already on gigs they didn't they weren't getting paid so they were like mm, I don't think so and I landed on one this guy his name is CJ Capitan honest to god Capitan 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 and 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 his uh, I think his email is uh, Capitan makeup you know it's like the greatest name he lives in Seattle or he lives just down in Washington he is responsible for all the looks. If you saw the first season and you saw the blues guy, mm. the blues guy with the wispy white beard the, uh, who looks like he's dying, like he's two steps away from falling into his own grave. <laughs> that CJ who painstakingly just glued tiny wisps. Uh, wow. and, and when I'm looking at, I could barely look at Ken when he would look at me and he was so old and he looked so ill. Yeah. He looked so <laughs> Ill. It was like something is rotting in you and it's showing up on your face. And then he plays the blues and he's so funny. He's a Southern guy. But CJ Capitan was the makeup guy, is yeah. the makeup guy. And then my partner, my uh, my own person, you know, my, my girlfriend, Greta Headley, who's worked in the business for a million years as a costume designer. Mm. And Greta uh, did the costumes. Oh my God. And she's fabulous at it so when you see you know when you saw season two and you saw uh the punk guy the scottish punk guy he was i think of i mean besides klaus yeah. i think punk guy was my favorite yeah i think of all of them because also how he was relating to ian was unexpected yeah um, saying yeah. saying uh like uh, i'm saying you know you're you're uh, you're obscure and he's like yeah i like it that way yeah i want to be obscure and i'm like oh wow really and he's like yeah so being on your show is actually in line <laughs> in line with my personal manifesto because you have like 10 listeners and I'm like well come on and he's like he's like no this is great nobody's listening this is great being on the show where nobody's hearing me I love it and I'm it's kind of insulting to me and I'm trying to go well come on he's like and he won't have any of it that's that what what Ken is wearing 
is a result of Greta's kind of genius because she grew up in London. She was a punk oh. herself. Oh. So Greta, I went shopping with Greta to Value Village. Yeah. I found that sweater. I go, what do you think about this sweater? Because it had that kind of like tiger stripey sort of thing that Johnny Rotten and the Sex yeah. Pistols used to wear. And she goes, okay, perfect. So when Ken puts it on, he's wearing it and she's deconstructing it mm. on him in my apartment putting uh, massive, um, uh, you know, pins in it, like uh, diaper pins or yeah. whatever. And she's just, and she's taking uh, uh, scissors and knife and she's clawing at it and she's ripping it and she's shredding it on him. Wow. So that is, so, so, so being in the business for this long, uh, having these many amazing relationships that you just keep going because everybody wants to see everybody succeed. Yeah. So I can call Julie McAfee that I have a friendship with from, from since 1987. Yeah. Julie's like, get over here. I got a wig bin. Dig in. Help yourself. I call CJ Capitan. He's like, wow, this sounds cool. Yeah. He comes up from the States and he freaks out because he kept for him the fact that on one day, he basically transforms Ken into three different guys. He's in heaven. Wait, that you should have led with that. You filmed all of those in one day? Three episodes in one day. In it, yeah, they were all done in one day. What? Yeah. So Because like me, I can only record one episode yeah. in one day, because then I'm depleted. Like I've given all I can. Well, to be honest, know? like to to you know, to your point. It, 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 the last, when we shot season two, we shot at uh, Exile uh, Guitars on Main. Yeah. Exile on Main. Um, and uh, they let us have their store uh, from like after they closed to like three in the morning or whatever. So try improvising at two o'clock in the morning. It's exhausting. Wow. That was a bit, and we kind of learned from that. We said, okay, next time when we do season three, we're not going to go that late because we can't, it's like, it's too much. So you loopy. think you can, but yeah. you can't. You can't improvise on, you can't be on top of your game yeah. at that in the middle of the night, yeah. right? But all done in one day. So as soon as we fin finished, we would do like two takes. Two interviews, like, so they're in almost in real time, like half an hour, you know, 15 minutes or whatever. Do, do it again. Try different things. Okay, we're done. Then Ken, like, rushes upstairs, gets all the shit taken off his face yeah. and gets cleaned up. And then, um, and then uh, CJ goes at him for the next character and just glues all the stuff to his face or whatever. Wow. And I'll tell you, when he, when he was... This is a little inside thing because I, I I love this moment. When he when I was upstairs watching CJ put all the unibrow and the mustache and everything on Ken, and Ken's just being so funny. I was sitting there thinking, what can I surprise Ken with? Like, what can I, in the interview, what can I, because we talked roughly about the interview because John and Ken and I would write them in the sense of like the way they do Curb Your Enthusiasm, you know, like signposts you want to hit. Like, uh, not it's not a really a spoiler alert, but the but the punk guy uh, in Glasgow was in jail and he recorded an album in jail. We thought that was a funny concept, so we just built on that, right? But there's parts of it where I want to just throw shit at Ken because it's like I want to see what he does with it. Yeah. So I started. So I went to him at one point in the interview and I said, "You've got like I was noticing the songs." on your um on your album are like sand dollar 
um, you know, uh, ecstasy, like these kind of like esoteric kind of vague descriptive names. And he's like, yeah. And I said, I was, I was just fascinated to find out that those were, um, uh, also, uh, the names of Benjamin Moore paint chips, you know, colors. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Um, and my children, you know, so, so I give him that and then he gives me that. And I go, yeah, it's great. Can you play? Would you mind playing the that that beautiful song, Sand Dollar? Which yeah, oh, that's the name of my second daughter, Sand Dollar. And that's obviously a color from Benjamin Moore, but it's his kid. So these are the primo moments for him and I, where we're building on it. Yeah. And he knows he's not stopping to laugh. He's taking it in. He's just going with it. He's throwing shit back at me. I can't laugh. I can't break. If you watch the Klaus one. You know, the, the first one where I mention the 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 knocking, I'm talking about Berlin and recording at the Hansa studio where yeah. Bowie recorded and U2 and whatever. And I'm, and I'm throwing that in as real stuff. And I go, yeah, when the wall came down, when the wall came down and he looks at me and he goes, well, yeah, but uh, I mean, the, the wall came down 10 years later. <laughs> and, I go, and I didn't realize, I was like, my first thing was like, ah, oh, fuck. And I go, yeah, but I'm not. I'm not talking about that wall. I'm talking <laughs> about the wall in your mother's house between your the you and your brother's bedrooms where she tore that wall down. And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, oh that. So we just kind of made we. It was like I was literally scrambling. I didn't know what I was gonna yeah. say when he tells me, yeah, but what are you talking about? The 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 Berlin Wall came down like later. And I had to come up with something. And that's when the magic happened. That's when, and we, that's one of my favorite moments. And we, that's, and so that's what, that's why I even wanted to work with Ken because of this idea of like, what do you, Ken, what do you think about this idea? And he just went with it. And yeah. now we have six episodes in the can. We're so proud of them. They're really fun to do. Yeah. And they are of a, they're good quality. You know, they're produced well. Yeah. We've been, and uh, you mentioned that you mentioned that I won a Leo for best actor like uh, two years ago. Well, last Leos, are, uh, Forgotten Masters, won best web series. We actually have two Leos now. Oh wow! So we won we won a, a Leo for the series, and in the Minnesota Web Fest, Ken won best Ken back, won, right. best actor. And and John on our behalf submits some Forgotten Masters to many uh, many. Um, festivals we're always getting picked we don't always win but we're they, they're just like we're uh, you, your your show has been nominated your show has been picked as chosen as part of the thing like as soon as they see it they're like oh yeah this is like high quality it's really good and and so uh it's been an incredible thing happening of just me going how can i work with ken <laughs> that's the short version of that of forgotten masters origin story yeah is gary wanted to work with ken i really wanted to work with ken i and and i knew john i knew mark but i had no idea that they were that they would sort of coalesce down the road yeah well uh, this is you trusting the universe absolutely i yeah. just uh, that's the voice the voice the voice that had me go how do i work with ken the voice, the answer from the voice would be, well, why don't you try and mash up his improv skills with his guitar playing? Yeah. And I, and then I, 
and then Forgotten Masters, the name just dropped into my head. Oh, I didn't say it. It's about the unstrung heroes. Yes. And I just love the self-satisfaction that Ian has when he says that. Oh, As my somebody who has written hundreds of intros now, I, I can see how he's taking the joy in that. Yes. Um, if you want to watch Forgotten Masters, you can head to the footnotes for this episode on the YBR Screen Scene site. You'll find a link. Uh, if, if this is before October 13th, you'll find uh, three episodes. If this is after or on October 13th, you'll find six episodes. Yeah. Um, Gary Jones. This has been one of the best, um, my, one of my best experiences on a, on a podcast because I just the nature of just talking with you has just been so easy and fun. I have just loved this. Yeah, this has been This has been really wonderful. special to me because yeah. you're, I love that you're willing to kind of go to these places and not just talk about the business or the project or the this or the that. It's, I, I'm, I'm not so linear. So, so you, you've kind of accommodated how I think and I, I, I'm so grateful uh, for you to have brought that to me because I feel like that's kind of where, where I'm at my best. Thank so, you. So thank you so much. Yeah. It was lovely to meet Made you. Made some good magic at this. Yes. At, at this kitchen table, kitchen yes. recording table. Yes. Um, where can our listeners find you and follow you and celebrate you on social media? Because you're on the social meds, right? I am on social media. I'm, um, I'm um, on Twitter. I'm at at the Gary Jones, like like uh, the capital T, capital G, capital, so at the Gary Jones. I think on Instagram, I'm Gary Jones 680. If you wanna, you know when I, when I said to you earlier about how I kind of see the world? If you go on Instagram and you look at my, like the, the, the a lot of the posts there, you will see an example, you'll see examples of how I see the world. I see mm. things and I photograph them and then I put little comments on them, but it's like, I try to present things to people that the way I see it so that they could go, oh, I never, I didn't, you saw it like that. I didn't see it like that. Yeah. So that's an example, if you want like a visual representation of kind of like my Instagram stuff is like how I see the world. Um, uh, I'm on, you know, I'm on Facebook or whatever, but, um, and then, and then I work for debaters. I've been, I've been writing for the debaters for 18 seasons since the workshop, since it was workshopped Wow. where my, where the creator, Richard side, who's my writing partner came to me and said, I got again, again, I got this idea. What do you think about this idea? That's how he works. You know, with the, the people that I connect with and I, that I just love are those people who love that little spark of a moment mm. where you just go, I think this might be something, Yeah. you know? And, and then they, and then, and then they, they mull it over, they explore yeah. it, they sit with it. Like before I went to Cannes, I let it mull. I let it just kind of ferment a bit. And I, because I wanted to go to him with something. I did not want to go to Cannes and go, Hey, do you want to work on something that, that, that does, you know, where we improvise plus you play guitar? I thought I can't do that. I need to show up with something a bit more than that, mm. but that he can kind of visualize. And that's what I did. So when Richard uh, talked to me about the debaters and what he had in mind, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like debaters, uh, debating with just with comedians <laughs> and stand-up comics. And he had myself and Roman Danilo and Ellie Harvey go down into the basement 
of the CBC downtown Vancouver. Oh, and he what a, what a and, maze it is and down he there. He sat there with a clipboard. He sat there with a clipboard, and he'd go and he'd set up a couple of podiums, and he'd go, "Okay, guys, um, can you try this? Can you try this? Can you? Uh, what about this? What about if you if you sort of did this?" And we workshopped. He, he, you know, Richard's fantastic. He's so great. He, he paid us. He paid us for the day. He goes, come down, workshop it for me. You know, you'll get paid. And I did it. And Richard realized that when I was doing it, that that's the the way that the sh the the jokes in the show and how the word the wording and like the love of the wording, that was my jam. So yeah. so he kept me on as a writer. And then he and I uh, did a lot of the writing together. And then eventually we knew we needed another writer. And it, he went through a few great, funny, funny people like Charlie Demers and like right. different stand-up. And then we settled on Graham Clark. And now Graham is like one of the funniest guys I've ever met. Great stand-up. He's kind of like the head writer now. Yeah. And Graham and I, you know, we, it's, so I've worked with Graham for, but so I am the longest standing person on the debaters since day wow. one to, to now that should have been in your bio uh i don't know what difference it would make necessarily but i have been on the show for 18 seasons and i'm really really proud of that show it's a great show and your mom is very proud of you as my well. mom's proud of me because yeah. <laughs> all i have to do is mention cbc, CBC. and she's like okay i can i can die happy yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway again uh Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was like great to meet you. Yeah, it was really good to meet you too. Yeah. Um, you stay at one minute. Yes. I'm gonna say the end credits. Yep. And uh, and then we'll take a photo. Yeah. And I'll and then I'll get you on my wall. I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. So you can look at the wall while I, I say all this part here. Okay. Okay. The Why Bear Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Rani Mera Firminger, and it's edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for putting our Patreon ad and for Paul Furminger for technical support. We have, we have a lot of Furmingers here. Webber Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! Hey filmmakers, did you know that you can hire top quality, experienced and professional actors for your films? If you're producing a student film for course credits, working on a web series, a short or a feature film, you can afford to have some of the best talent in the business in your production. How, you ask? Well, UBCP Actor has an ultra-low budget program, which offers a range of options that cover everything from student films to productions with a $300,000 budget. There is a ULB program that will meet your needs, regardless of your budget. To learn more, visit ubcpactor.ca and look for ultra-low budget programs or email ulbprogram at ubcpactra.ca. Now is the time to jumpstart your dream for the screen.